These are certainly momentous times in which we are living. In many ways, they are unprecedented. This is certainly not the first pandemic that our nation or the world has faced, but there has never been such a radical response to a pandemic. There has never been a time when there were such massive closures of entire countries, of entire economies. And I'm not a historian, but with the, with the possible exception of the Civil War, I don't know when there has been as much widespread civil and social unrest. I lived through the 60s, and I don't remember the protests then being as widespread as they are now. But that was a long time ago, and perhaps my memory fails me. But long-standing and accepted institutions like the need for police are now being challenged. Measures that at one time may have been considered the radical fringe are now being widely embraced. And cries for, cries for racial justice are finally being heard. These are uncharted waters. How are we as the church to navigate these waters at this time. Well, we would have to be here a lot longer than any of us would want to be here today to really go into how, how, what needs to be done. But in our passage today, providentially, you, you know, God has given us this passage for today. Peter does give us some guidance. And he does this on two levels. He does it on a personal level, and he does it on a social level as well. On a personal level, he warns us that embracing the, and I'm going to coin a term or expression here today that I'm going to use, unchristlike. I don't know that you'd find that word in a dictionary, but I'm going to use it anyway, unchristlike. He warns us that embracing the unchristlike values of the world can destroy our soul. And on a social level, that's the personal level, but on a social level, he exhorts us to practice the Christ-like values of the word to be a witness to the world. And so I've entitled our passage today The Importance of Personal and Social Christ-likeness. We want to look at the passage and then ask, how might this passage speak to us today? All right, where are we in the book of 1 Peter just by way of context? Our passage today actually begins a new section in the book of 1 Peter. Up to this point, Peter has focused on who we are and our responsibilities because of who we are. We are the we are those whom God has chosen to be his people in this world, and therefore we are to be holy because he is holy. And because God is now our Father, we should live with a holy and healthy fear of him, knowing that we will give an account of our lives before him one day. And we are now his new temple and a new priesthood where we offer the sacrifices uh, as sacrifices the obedience of of our lives. No longer the sacrifice of animals as they had in Israel. Now the sacrifice is our own lives that we present to him. 
And we are a chosen race, one new race now of all peoples. No longer it's Israel and the nations. It's one race today, one race of all peoples. And we're a holy nation, a new nation set apart by God among the nations of the world. The church is a new nation among the nations of the world. And now, pretty much for the remainder of the book, Peter gives instructions for how we are to live in this fallen and hostile world, a world that is hostile toward the things of God. And as I said, he begins today with two general principles concerning personal Christ-likeness and social Christ-likeness. He begins with a warning on the personal level, embracing the, here's this term I'm using, unchristlike values of the world destroys our soul. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Peter begins by addressing his readers as aliens and strangers. So what might it mean to see ourselves in this way as aliens and strangers. Well, that expression refers to people who are living in a foreign land away from their homeland. They are resident aliens. And those who lived as resident aliens, they did not have, they did not enjoy the rights of citizens, and they were not part of the culture and customs of the people where they resided. And Peter says that we as believers, we are to see ourselves as resident aliens in this world. This is not our true home. This is not our homeland. We are resident aliens in this world. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Think in terms of a diplomat to a foreign country, another country. A diplomat going to another country does not take a permanent residence in that country. They don't change their citizenship. They may respectfully observe some of the customs of the country, but they don't necessarily buy into them just because they're living there. They retain their identity of the country from which or to which they belong. I mean, U.S. diplomats to China don't become communist just because they're living in communist China, okay? They don't take on the culture and religion of the country just because they're living there. They are simply there to represent and serve their government. And so we are on a diplomatic mission here in this world. Paul uses the term ambassadors. We're ambassadors here for Christ. Our, our homeland, our true country is heaven. But we're here on a diplomatic mission. And so because this world is not our home, he urges us to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, we might immediately think that fleshly lusts refers to illicit sexual passions, and well, certainly that's probably included here. But this expression is literally abstain from the desires of the flesh. 
which can include the desire or pursuit of anything that is opposed to God's will. I refer to this as the unchristlike values and behavior of the world system. Okay? The desires of the flesh are the unchristlike values and behaviors of the world in which we live, the country that we're now residing but is not our homeland. For example, Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. He talks about the deeds of the flesh, okay, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and now, now look at some of these other things, enmities and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and factions and envying and drunkenness and carousing. All of those things are the un-Christ-like values and behavior of the world. He says much the same thing in Colossians 3. He talks about anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. All of these are the sinful, are sinful desires and behavior. They're un-Christ-likeness. And Peter says, abstain from all these things. Keep away from them. Keep them out of your life. When they creep in, we need to repent and get rid of these kinds of values and behavior. We need to take it seriously. But why? Peter says, because these things wage war against the soul. What does he mean? It means these things attack and diminish our soul. They attack and diminish who we are in Christ. It's not the loss of salvation, but it takes away from the work of Christ in us. It takes away from the image of Christ in us. They affect these, 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 these unchristlike values and behavior. They affect who we are as a people, who we are as a person. When we embrace these things, they diminish us as people in Christ. The quality of the person that we are. And to tolerate and accept these un-Christ-like values and behavior of the world changes who we are in our soul. They wage war against the very depth of who we are. Well, Paul next turns to our social Christ-likeness. You see, that's the personal Christ-likeness that we must deal with as individuals. But now he turns to a, our social Christ-likeness. And in verse 12, well, he says, practicing the Christ-like values of the word can be a witness to the world. Verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Well, in verse 11, he talked about personal Christ-likeness. Well, now he focuses on the outward display of Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness in social settings. And so to keep your behavior excellent, what does that mean? Well, it's to maintain the highest standard of Christ-likeness in our behavior. And among the Gentiles means simply in our interaction with the world. 
And he continues, verse 12, so that with the result that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, and Peter is simply acknowledging that Christians are often the objects of scorn and ridicule by the world, by that country in which we are living, residing as resident aliens, by the world system. Christians are often the objects of slander and scorn. Even from his own time, or that era, Suetonius was a Roman historian at the end of the first century, first century, and wrote that Christianity was a mischievous superstition. Tacitus, another Roman historian from the same period, described Christianity as a dangerous superstition, and Christians as a race were detested for their evil practices. Not much has changed since then. Christianity is scorned today as those mindless idiots that believe in miracles. <laughs> they believe in a resurrection. They believe in a, a God of wrath and the need for atonement or substitutionary atonement. They believe in those who oppose a woman's right to choose. They're bigots who oppose gay marriage. So often what we think is good is considered evil in the eyes of the world. And we're slandered as evil doers in the very things that we hold most dear and we're tr that we think is true and right and good and honorable. We're slandered as evildoers. But Peter says, that may be the case. He says this, let them see your good deeds. We can't win the arguments necessarily, but let them see your good deeds. He says, continuing on in verse 12, that they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, as they observe a true and sincere Christ-likeness in us, and what might that look like? Well, we might go back to Galatians 5. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's a pretty good picture of what Christ-likeness looks like expressed in social interaction. And in Colossians 3, compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. Wow, what a beautiful expression of what Christ-likeness looks like socially expressed and what is the outcome if we are able to do that as they observe our Christ likeness Peter says some will glorify God in the day of visitation the day of visitation is the day when the Lord returns when he visits once again and there will be there there will be those who glorify and praise God in that day because they have come to saving faith through the witness of Christ-likeness in believers on account of the good deeds as they observe them. There will be those who glorify God in the day of visitation. Through the good deeds, through the Christ-likeness of God's people. Now, of course, this will not be everyone. But Peter says there may be some. There may be some for whom God will use the witness of your life 
the Christ-likeness in your life to bring them to himself. (laughs) What Peter is saying here is simply what the Lord had taught him and the other disciples. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So to summarize, on a personal and individual level, embracing the unchrist-like values of the world destroys our soul. On a social level, practicing the Christ-like values of the word can be a witness to the world. The question is, how does this passage speak to us today? And the emphasis is really on today. This is a momentous time in our nation's history. We have had a troubled history of race relations, to put it almost sinfully mildly, stemming from what many are calling America's original sin, slavery. And then the concentrated evil efforts to keep African Americans marginalized, to put it mild, to put it kindly, to keep them marginalized in our country. There have been valiant efforts to overcome this. We think of the civil rights movement. And there have been Herculean efforts to oppose it. We think of Jim Crow, the KKK, and the unconscionable intimidations of lynchings. America has made great strides albeit at times unwillingly. But we've made great strides toward equality of opportunity for all people. America has never been about equality of outcome, but our highest ideals have been about equality of opportunity for all people. But in spite of the progress we have made, there still remains in our hearts, in varying measure, and in our social and economic and and, and criminal justice systems, racial animus. And this moment in history, this moment in history is about recognizing this. That's what this is about today. It's about recognizing this. And it is here that the church must speak with clarity. We must say with clarity that racism is wrong. We must speak it. That it is sin. And that the racial injustices that are part of our social and economic and criminal justice systems are wrong. Isaac, could you give me a a bottled water, please? I appreciate that. Thanks. The racial injustices that are part of our social and economic and criminal justice systems are wrong. 
They are sinful. And they need to be changed. <clears throat> Thank you. And we must affirm that black lives matter. We must affirm that black lives matter. Now, this does not mean that we necessarily align ourselves with the movement and all that it embraces and all that has been done under the banner of Black Lives Matter, the rioting, the looting, the killing. But the issue is... <clears throat> this is what we must recognize. The issue is that black lives, which has often been, which, which have often been denied justice, do matter. And we must finally hear their cry. Not a cry for a handout, but a cry for America's highest ideals and God's highest ideals, a cry for justice. It is a cry for the church to hear their voice. And we cannot minimize this by saying that, well, all lives matter. Of course all lives matter. But the point here that is being made is that black lives, <coughs> excuse me, black lives in varying measure have been denied justice in our country as if they don't matter as much as, as white lives Black lives do matter. And it is time for us to say, I hear you. And the time is now to say that we recognize that it is wrong, it is sin, it must change, and we must change. Now to say this does not leave us with a binary option. To affirm the desire for equal justice and opportunity for African Americans does not mean that we are against the police or that all police are racist or to say that America is an immoral nation and our past should be erased. To say one does not mean is not to say the other necessarily. But it is to say that we hear you. Injustices do exist. And we want to lend our voice in our hands for justice. And so to apply our passage to this moment in history, the unchristlike attitude of racism wages war against our soul. It destroys the sanctifying work of Christ in us. It weakens us spiritually. It destroys the image of Christ in us and in the church. The unchristlike attitudes of resentment and anger toward those crying out for justice wages war against our soul. The work of Christ and the image of Christ in us is diminished. The unchristlike attitude of pride and not being willing to admit our sins or the sins of our past wages war against our soul. That pride wages war. We might think our pride makes us look stronger, but in reality, it makes us weaker and smaller 
the unchristlike attitude of arrogance, of not being open to listen to the cries for justice, wages war against our soul. And may I say to our African-American brothers and sisters, the particularly challenge, the particular challenge that you face is to forgive. Because the unchristlike attitude of bitterness and the lack of forgiveness wages war against your soul. But Peter doesn't stop with this. He says the practice of a high standard of Christ-likeness is a witness to the world. So what might keeping our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, what might that look like in this moment? The Christ-like behavior of self-giving and sacrificing love and compassion is a witness to the world. The Christ-like behavior calling for and acting for justice, especially justice for the oppressed. It is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, and it is a witness for Christ. The Christ-like behavior of loving our enemies, which is not limited to people who are trying to persecute us, but includes people who are simply on the other side, whatever other side that may be. People that don't look like, act like, think like, or vote like us. This is a witness for Christ. The Christ-like behavior, as the prophet Micah has said, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God is a witness for Christ. We must avoid those unchrist-like things that wage war against our soul. And we must embrace those qualities of Christ that are a witness for him. That we might bring his presence and power to bear in this struggle for equal justice. All. Brian Stevenson is the African American author of Just Mercy. The book's now been made into a film. I haven't seen the film, but I have read the book. It's a powerful, revealing book. He says this if we can look at ourselves closely and honestly, I believe we will see that we all need justice, we all need mercy, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Isaac and Dave are going to come now and share some of their thoughts on this matter as well as elders in our church. I have a lot of notes <laughs> that I wrote down. Uh, Ken covered a lot of it already, so maybe I'll uh, uh, cut some of this out. <laughs> okay, so why am I up here today? 
we're discussing current events in our um, elders meeting in, our, in, in, in today's passage. And I wanted to talk about some application of the verse, uh, but I wanted to add some personal context to it. I think it's important to know what we're up against. Peter knows that the Christians that he's writing to face a tough future. If you remember, he's writing to the church in exile. Uh, he's writing to Jewish Christians who've been removed from their home and their land, and they're spread across the Roman Empire at this point. So what does Peter tell them? To fight, to be right, to stand up for their side? Peter instructs them to make their conduct so honorable that even when they call you evildoers, they will glorify God because of your honorable conduct. I'd imagine that's not an easy thing to hear. Uh, the Jews were a proud race. They spent a millennia as God's chosen people, uh, the ones who got it right when the entire world uh, got it wrong. Uh, believers who came from a culture where when the Messiah came, they figured he was there to conquer Rome and to uh, uh, lead them to a political victory, right? So Peter tells them that their duty in the, false, in, in the face of these false accusations is to live righteously. They're to be a witness to their Gentile neighbors, despite the injustice of it. This means that more important than perceived slights against them or even accusations that could do them harm was the gospel, is loving their neighbors. And the idea of glorifying God in the day of visitation, as Ken said, means that their good works and their righteousness could change people's lives, that people who are accusing them now could be standing with them as brothers and sisters in Christ when Christ returns. This verse tells of a gospel life lived out, one that transcends cultural, racial, and political divisions, one where those who hate us most and seek our destruction are eventually those who stand by our side worshiping the same God because of the lives that we've lived in their presence. In fact, Paul, writing to a, a Gentile church in Rome, tells them in Romans 10, 12, that there's no Jew or Gentile anymore in the church but one Lord over both. Can you imagine that? I mean, they, they're, they hadn't probably changed a whole lot about what they were used to, the way that they lived and everything. Uh, so you'd have Gentiles come to church on Sunday, having forsaken their many gods and uncircumcised and go home after church and have a pork dinner. You have the Jews circumcised, uncut beards, the chosen race breaking bread with their Gentile brothers at church and then going home and having lamb chops. Much of the book of Romans is addressing the question of the Jews attending a church started by Gentiles, worshiping the one true God and the chosen Messiah of the chosen people. How can this be? But they were one in Christ. So how does this apply, especially today in a time of even worsening racial division? I think this idea of conducting ourselves in a way that even our enemies would come to glorify God is incredibly relevant for us. When we're confronted with the issue of race in America, it's natural to be defensive. Racism is such an awful, terrible, and illogical thing. How could we even admit to being insensitive to it, much less part of it? It's much easier to ignore it, to raise our defenses, to retreat to familiar corners. Some would say, I'm not racist, I'm colorblind as though a different color of skin is so troublesome that you've achieved something by not noticing. Even though God intentionally made us beautifully diverse. 
But this divide is an opportunity to be the church, to see our brothers and sisters in Christ as our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the lost world, every person, every color, every economic circumstance, as those Christ loved as much as you and me, to die for them. Trust me, it's much easier to do this with people we know. There's little empathy needed and little to discuss when we're with our friends who we've shared our experiences and lives with. Perhaps a little more empathy and understanding when we attempt to impact the lives of friends who don't look like us or talk like us or come from same backgrounds. What about the rest of the world? What about the person walking down the street who's unfamiliar? The person who looks poor or wears different clothes or listens to different music, how do you view them? What about the stranger on TV who regards you as a bigot simply because you're a white Christian? Do you love them? What about the person on TV who regards you as a statistic because you're black? A number on a page, a monolithic subset of American population. Do you love them? Do you see them as Christ sees them? Empathy and love is easier with people you know. So I want to share something that I rarely share. Something I don't want to think about. Something I pray in earnest to God about. I'm not a fearful person. In fact, uh, sometimes I'm more cavalier than I should be. Uh, but let me tell you about what keeps me up at night, because it may be something you don't know. It may help when it comes to how you empathize and how you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. <laughs> when I wrote my notes, I wrote, you know, most of you know my family and, and you know, know who we are and everything. We have a lot of visitors here today, which is great. This is awesome. But uh, that's why I wrote in my notes, so you'll, you'll just, you'll have to figure it out. When I was growing up, my parents never gave me the talk. My friends and I used to, uh, we'd get together, we'd make our own fireworks. We'd uh, take our water guns, we'd spray paint them black, take the orange tip off, and uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd play soldiers, we'd play commandos in the front yard. You know, we'd station two people at the house and two people to, to you know, fight our way to the house, and that was the game we played. Didn't have a care in the world. Didn't think a thing about it. Let me tell you about the talk I've had with my kids. Don't play with your water guns in the front yard unless I'm out there with you. If you're outside by yourself and a cop comes up to you, obey everything he says, even if it seems unfair. Don't talk back. Don't, you know, don't, don't put your hands in your pockets. Don't walk around in the middle of the day with your hoodie on, you know, and your hood up. Even if they do something you think is unfair, make sure everything that you say is respectful. If they mistreat you, get home safe. Tell me, you know, I'm, I'm your white dad, I'll fix it. You starting to get the picture? See, you know my kids. I know my kids. Strangers don't know my kids. They see a, you know, a tall black kid with his headphones in, uh, listening to rap music. By the way, it's the same rap music that my wife and I grew up on. You know, it's Christian DC talk, but you, know, you, you don't know that. People don't know that seeing it. 
I see my kids, I see, you know, honor students, a sense of humor, uh, an overdeveloped sense of fairness. They, they, they like to argue when they know they're right. I mean, you know, un unlike every other kid, right? <laughs> uh, one of them's just as ADHD as I am, the other one's just as OCD as my wife is. To me, with all their human flaws, they're perfect. Bet you feel the same way about your own kids, right? My fear is that the stranger walking down the street doesn't know my kids. They don't see who I see. They see what they think they know. You probably had to stop your mischievous kid, right? Uh, tell them, okay, no dessert, you've been acting out. You gotta go sit in the corner, right? I mean, who, who as a parent hasn't experienced that? You ever have someone witness your child acting out and come up and tell you, you know, you, you, you better get your kid's attitude in check because someday they're going to have run-ins with law enforcement. The things people are experiencing, even in the 21st century, that you might not know about. We're all walking in different shoes. Uh, speaking of shoes, quick detour. <laughs> It's not just race. Ask your running friend how many times she's been catcalled. Ask her how that affects her feelings of safety. Ask her how she feels about jogging after dark like you might. There's room for empathy and for the love of Christ. So what's the point? We have a comfortable bubble that we live in. It's okay, we all do. There's so much to expend your energy on every day. It's hard to make the effort to break out of it. But outside of that bubble is a hurting world that needs to see light. And I don't just mean war-torn countries, third world countries, I mean our neighbors. Those who live next door but seem like they're from a different world. Like Gentiles of Peter's time, they're experiencing today things today, June 14th, 2020, that may not be like your experience. They need your kindness and understanding. But more than that, they need you to love them as Christ loves you. They need you to be Christ to them, to transcend political, racial, and ideological divides, that they would know one thing. Christ's love lived to them through you so that by your conduct, they, even if today they might be your enemies, will come to glorify God. God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let us see every person from the rich man in his tower who lacks nothing in this life to the poor man on the park bench who has nothing to offer with the same love and then act on it. Where I begin this process is to repent of the times that I allow politics, apathy, and my natural defenses against anything uncomfortable to block me from showing the love of Christ and having empathy towards the person that Christ has loved enough to die for. May God break our hearts for the lost, every single one, and for our brothers and sisters in Christ who face injustice and mistreatment. May we as the church show our conduct to be so honorable that it causes the world around us to glorify God.
Thank you for listening. Um, some of y'all may not know my history. I uh, grew up in New Orleans, in Algiers. Uh, it's on the West Bank, New Orleans. My first white teacher was when I was in seventh grade. And um, so you can get the context of, um, kind of my upbringing. Um, I, uh, in first grade, my first grade teacher, her name is Miss Brown. And um, you know how you have to type in the password, who's your favorite teacher? I, it's always Miss Brown. Um, I absolutely idolized her. Um, I can remember being in the class and just staring at her as she taught. She just showed so much love to every student there. It, I remember, this is going to be a little broken up, but I can remember the last day we had our class party, and I can remember sitting there. Everyone had left and just crying because I just wanted her to always be my teacher. And she, you know, put her hand on me and loved me and said, it's going to be okay. There's other teachers. <laughs> um, recently, I, with everything that's gone on with George Floyd and many others, it made me think about Miss Brown and think, you know, she grew up based on the time frame. I mean, this is the mid-'70s. I mean, she grew up in a time when she, when she was experiencing the kind of outward racism, institutional racism, and for her to go in and to treat all of us so beautifully and with such a Christ-like heart to me was like thinking back on that, but to be also thinking that maybe today, that she's in fear for her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren in America, breaks my heart. If you don't know me, I'm the, uh, an elder here as well as the director for Young Life in Northeast Florida. Um, if we were to look at our staff in Duval County, uh, we are right down the middle, half black, half white. And I have listened to their stories. Um, when Jesus was going to heal Jairus's daughter, uh, or when he was on the road, it says he stopped when the woman came to touch his clothes. And I love how it says that Jesus stopped and listened to her whole story. That is the challenge that I want to put forth to all of my white brothers and sisters, that we need to stop and listen to the stories of our black brothers and sisters and to the black community. If we don't do that, what are we doing here claiming Christ as our Savior? I'm going to share a few of these stories that I've heard recently, some of which I 
Can't believe I hadn't heard before, but I can tell you why I haven't, because my black brothers and sisters have said, you know, I just didn't want to upset you. I didn't want, you know, to bother you with this. It's kind of my thing. I just, and it breaks my heart that they have still felt like when they walk into and Young Life, which is a pretty diverse ministry, but they still have to adjust to the white culture. That they still have to feel that they have to adjust so that they don't hurt white people's feelings. I know that uh, my good friend Sam Coleman, Sam is the director of multi-ethnic urban ministry for the Southeast. Sam and I have lunch uh, or breakfast once a month. When I moved here to Jacksonville, he was the person that met me at the U-Haul on 103rd and helped me unload our entire U-Haul of stuff. He's the one who invited me to go fishing for the first time here in Jacksonville. I know that when we eat breakfast together, he likes his bacon extra crispy, and he likes his eggs scrambled soft. I always joke about that. I don't understand that. And uh, we just joke about it. Um, I know that his grandchildren are now becoming young men. And as Isaac shared, he has had to have that same talk. I know that he has been a room as a senior leader in the mission of Young Life and has felt that his point of view or his words are being looked over. He can feel it. That breaks my heart. Ed Ross has been a good friend that I met on a ski trip, very large football player, grew up in Dallas. I met him on a ski trip as a black leader at a suburban high school, taking kids out skiing. He's like, I don't even ski, man. But, you know, got to love these kids, got to go along with this, you know. And he shared with me, he's a dear friend, he shared with me the fact that one of his white friends, a girl, they were friends and had kind of started to date and like each other when he was in high school. And um, he asked her to homecoming and she told him that she couldn't because her dad wouldn't let her go with him. That he was leading Young Life Club in East Dallas, Mesquite High School, and it was a suburban club, and he's outside the house with a bunch of the white kids in this neighborhood, and a cop drives up and gets out and looks at the white kids and says, is everything okay? This is a person that had been on their campus a hundred times knew every one of these kids by name. That 
breaks my heart. And just recently, my office, which is right on San Jose Boulevard, I had just finished meeting with our Northwest Jacks director, Dolores Beeman, and the baseball coach from Rebalt High School. And our meeting was over, and I had to leave a little bit early, so they were hanging out in the parking lot. And this is one of the people that said, David, I just don't want to tell you because, you know, I didn't want to upset you. But they were there. No one else was there. And a cop pulled in and asked them what they were doing there. This is why we have to listen to the stories. It is real. Everything that Ken shared about the racial injustices in the criminal justice system or when it is even within an organization that is trying its best to work through these things, we are not doing enough. We have to listen. We have to dig deep into our hearts. And we have to look our black brothers and sisters in the face. And we have to say, we love you and we want to make a difference in this community, in our lives with each other. That the only way that this is going to happen is that we as believers, we as the body of Christ, have to say that this is enough. And we have to seek within our own hearts what we need to change. And we have to continue to talk and to take action. I had not planned how to in this, but one thing is that I know that we have a Redeemer that sees us, that loves us, that knows us, every single one. I also know that when Jesus was carrying the cross. That Simon the Cyrene from North Africa, very strong possibility of him being a black man, was asked to then carry that cross all the way. He carried the cross of our Savior. We have to help carry this cross with our black brothers and sisters. And like I said, if we don't, what are we doing? If you would join me in prayer, I'd appreciate it. Lord Jesus, Have mercy on us. 
Lord Jesus, give us strength. God, I pray that without the filling of your spirit in us, we will remain blind to the ways in which we can help our black brothers and sisters in America right now. And we have to start here in this church and then move on and on from there. We are the body of Christ. That body is not complete without everyone. I pray against racism, hate. Hate that, in your words, is murder in our heart. I pray that we would stand up for justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes to our own prejudices, our own forms of discrimination, our own racist thoughts, things that take us away from your heart, Jesus. Because if I'm saying my heart's broken, your heart is breaking a thousand times more. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us. Bring us together. In your name we pray. Amen.